we're in it. Um, thank you to those who have already joined in so far. Um, as always, we are hoping more and more come through. Um, but we're two minutes past the hour. Already got some loyal listeners in the queue. So, oh, I would uh, wait. I would wait because <laughs> my listeners are disloyal. My listeners are doing other stuff right now. So if you if you, if you want any of my people to show up, you got to. It's got to be late. I'm always on time, but they're late. <laughs> <laughs> they're a slow first they're a slow uh first quarter not, not a good they first all, quarter crowd yeah they all live in miami and atlanta they got better things um, to do man <laughs> <laughs> well well we'll we'll do a you know the beauty of the call in app is that for those who don't know for those who aren't aware um the beauty of the call in app is you know we have this live audio functionality people can call in they can ask us some questions but it's also uh, both uh, recorded for a you know full um, in perpetuity podcast, both on the app and wherever you listen to your podcast with Spotify and Apple. So um, that's my that's my native plug right there. Oh, that, that's a pretty good one. I like that. It's very organic because I didn't know that you could get call in podcasts wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, including <laughs> Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast. I had no idea that that was a possibility. Cool. I don't know. Can you also can you also rate the app and give it five stars on iTunes? Because if so, that's a game changer. <laughs> I believe you can. I believe you can. Um, well, with all that being said, um, for everyone who has joined us so far, if you don't know me, my name is Jake Fisher. I'm an NBA reporter at Bleacher Report. Um, very pleased to be joined today by the Athletics Day Four, who I've only met in person one time in the back bowels of the UNLV um, Thomas and Mack Center, but it was a lovely interaction, and um, I, I'm an admirer of your work from afar, and uh, wanted to have you on to talk some surfing today. <laughs> there you go. Hey, listen, as I try to make known as often as I can, I'm a big fan of Jake Fisher. This is just a podcast where we're going to circle jerk and compliment each other. Um, but you're right. You know, it's funny. I think about meeting you in Vegas often because the conversation that we had there was one that we can't share publicly, but I think <laughs> about all the time. Yeah. So th- to frustrate your listeners. Yeah. It was a great experience. I appreciate that, man. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I think about it time to time as well. Um, but let's talk surfing. Most let's talk surfing. We got to talk um, surfing. No. You're an aspirational surfer. I love this. We'll get to that at the end. We'll get to that at the end. Um, I do want to jump into the first question I had for you, um, kind of along the lines of the uh, conversation we had in Vegas, because I, I did an AMA today on the Bleach Report app, um, and I've seen it so far in some of my Twitter mentions as well, that a lot of people are kind of just like upset by the general discourse around the Nets. Like, why? I mean, obviously, I put out a story. Ramona Shelburne put out a story. Howard Beck put out a story. Um, I believe Shams had a story at the Athletic. Like, we're all writing about it. And to me, for good reason. Like, the two, the first two sentences of my story today were the Nets were the odds on favor to win the title entering the season. And now they're the only team that's been swept out of the first round. Like, is that not just a massive story to you? I mean, I think it's a, it's a story, but the headline and the context, I think they tell different stories, right? Like the headline is yes, this team that is, was stacked. It seemed coming into the season, they started out Remember, 21 and eight on December 17th. This team was awesome. <laughs> and yeah, they, they were the favorites. And, and yes, they got swept. That, that is accurate. But I do think that the context does matter. Just like every story. COVID absolutely wrecked that team at one point. Then that team wrecked itself, right? I would tell you that if you didn't know any team's record, but you heard the stories from the season of the Brooklyn Nets, you would say, well, that team, no way that team's winning anything. If you didn't know anything about what was happening on the court, just the outside noise, James Harden out of shape, Kevin Durant like looking exhausted, Kyrie Irving b- didn't even play for most of the season and then was a part-time player, and all of that side drama going on there. And remember, this is a team that was already kind of like over-leveraged from an asset standpoint because that's what happens with superstar teams. 
if you just told me all of that stuff was happening, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm not surprised that the Brooklyn Nets didn't make it out of the first round. I mean, I guess the first round, that's tough. But the Boston Celtics are probably the best team in the East right now. So I'm, I, yeah. I think it's like the headline is certainly – it's catchy. You're going to catch people's attention, and it's not inaccurate. But the context of this team does matter. They were a seven seed, rightfully. That team sucked, man. They sucked ass. <laughs> <laughs> that defense, the, the first month of the season, the, the fake defense that they showed us fooled everybody for a little while. And then if you go look at the numbers, man, they fell apart. That team was bad. I, I mean, I agree. I, I think, to me, the context is everything, though, being that that's, that's what I view my job as being, is providing context to fans that – they're probably not going to get in many other uh, avenues based off of the economy that we're in. But that being said, like the fact that Ben Simmons was, and, and I, I, I do want to be clear because I actually just reread my piece today um, right before we got on here. And I, I do think I didn't, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't think I acknowledged that, the mental component is something that needs to be like, cause it's clear to me that from conversations I've had from both people around Brooklyn, around him, that the mental block is, is what is preventing him from getting back in the court. Not the back. Sure. Issue. I believe so. It. I mean, look, I, man, I, look, are, I, you like baseball. I, I used to like baseball. Can I, can I, were just, you, can were I just you a Yankees fan? Oh that? yeah. Sorry. 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 I thought you were. No, done. It's all good. It's yeah, all good. I, like, I, I do think that, it's important to consider that like this is a guy who clearly is going through something and that's a shitty situation. That being said, like he is a professional athlete and performing in front of the world is part of why you get paid, you know, $30 million plus like he does. And part of the reason why the Nets were even amenable to trading James Harden was the fact that they thought Simmons could actually potentially be a better fit with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving than Harden himself was. And the fact that he's not there and this team isn't what they were like that. I doesn't just, they're not just a seven seed, right? Like they're a super team that just like the Lakers weren't, aren't just a team. Like, like when there's all the expectation and all the star power and, the, the actors involved are saying like, we are title contenders. All we're going to do is compete for a title or else it's going to be a failure. Then like, I feel like it's only fair to cover them as such. I mean, I, I agree completely. They, I mean, they, they brought the expectations on themselves. This is sort of like yeah. with the Miami heat, right? Not one, not two, not three. Well, if you don't get four after you say it, <laughs> it's on you. But back to back to what I was gonna say. Like, yeah, you like baseball. Like, remember Chuck Knobloch? He couldn't throw to second base. Yeah, right. It was that's a mental thing, man. Rick Ankiel, wild pitches. Like, it's a mental thing. Mental part, it, it, like, it is a part of sports. And certainly, I feel for Ben Simmons. I get it, dude. Being in front of a crowd, having to do stuff, can be awful if you're not in the right space. I understand completely. But I like to think that. Professional basketball is a meritocracy, and part of the merit comes from being able to do the mental part. And at a certain point, man, it's like I, I feel bad for you, but you're taking somebody else's spot. Yeah, that's a yeah. job that somebody else. Like, I mean, I'm sorry, dude. Like the, the two way guys, the guys in the G League, the, the entire NBA middle class. Uh, like, not to go all workers' rights here, but the truth is, like, <laughs> yes, I feel for him as a human being who can't perform and do his job. And by the way, he's got a guaranteed contract, so more power to him. But also, I mean, this guy's taking up a roster spot that could go to yeah. somebody who can actually play. And, and uh, the mental part's part of it. So if you, can't, if you can't perform the job, I feel bad for you, but it, this, is, this is life, man. Time to move on. Well, moving on to that, to that effect, um, let's take our first call here from Kevin. Uh, Kevin, are you with us? Hello, Kevin, are you there? Maybe he's muted. No, you are muted, Kevin. Hello, can you hear me now? There you gotcha. go. Uh, sorry about that. How you no guys worries. doing? Good, how are you? What's up, buddy? Good. 
Uh, I know this might sound a little redundant, but I just wanted to talk about um, the Steve Nash thing. Uh, yeah. I just can't really, like, how can the Nets justify keeping him? Like, citing the reasons of the past two years, he was dealt a tough hand with injuries and COVID outbreaks. I know the James Harden thing was, like, unprecedented, and the whole Kyrie stuff was one one of one. But I was at Game 3 in Brooklyn, and when he put Blake Griffin into the game, kind of just for spare minutes, it seemed, like, the the entire landscape of the crowd and energy just changed as soon as he came in. I, be- I believe he took a charge right away and got a steal and just showed more heart than anyone else. And I just, to me, I feel like he sealed his own fate there, showing how he mishandled the entire postseason. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Blake Griffin's a funny example. Well, yeah. That's, that's my only thing, right? Is that, like, if you're saying that the difference between Steve Nash having a job and not having a job is putting Blake Griffin into a playoff game, I mean, I don't know, man. I think you've already kind of sealed his fate. You get what I mean? Like, no, the, the, yeah. His fate was sealed before that point. And, and they, the, no cohesion all season long. They haven't had an offense. Bruce Brown was out of their rotation at one point. In December, and, yeah. He wasn't playing yeah, the second. And yeah. So, like, I mean, there's been a lot of weird stuff there. But this is why I, I never understood. And, Jake, you know, you, you've done reporting on this. You know, they hire a guy who had no coaching experience. I mean, the, the little bit of time that he worked with the Warrior staff doing whatever he was doing there. Uh, felt like more like a guru situation to me than than a coach. Definitely, yeah. And, and and so it's like, what do you expect? You have these two guys who who came and are essentially running a franchise as superstar GMs who also play on the court, and then they sort of handpicked a guy to coach. I mean, I, I just the guy doesn't really have any authority. I mean, who runs that team? It's not it's not Steve Nash. Yeah, and I know Kevin Durant spoke to Vinny Goodwill at Yahoo last night um, about the perception that he's the GM and all that. And, like, from my understanding, I mean, Sean Marks definitely operates like a very high-powered general manager does, and then he brings things to Kevin Durant and gets sign-off, like, a lot of situations around the league. But there definitely are situations from also what I've heard that – KD and Kyrie go to management and say, this is what we want. And then that gets done. So, I mean, there's nothing of significant consequence in that franchise that happens without KD's sign off and, and, and probably Kyrie to a certain extent too. Um, so, I mean, yes, to, to bring Nash in from the jump was, was clearly a move that, I mean, Marks and Nash ha- have purportedly had a good relationship dating back to their days together playing in Phoenix but I mean, the, but the, the general accounting is what, what brought Nash from a pretty decent life in uh, retirement. And he was, you know, president of Canada basketball and doing BR live soccer studio stuff. Like he was living a good life. The reason, like the reason I, I think from all accounts, the definitive reason why he did take this job was because KD wanted him and Marks and everyone else involved were good enough at kind of selling him on the idea and, and showing what an opportunity it could be. I, I think, you know, to, to the, the point of his security, like there's been, I've, I've talked to a lot of people both in the franchise, around the franchise, around Nash, around the players involved. Like there's really no expectation that he would get fired by any stretch. Um, but there's definitely people talking about him walking away. I don't know. I don't know how serious that really can be, but it's a conversation that at least has gotten back to people high up in the Nets front office. And they're aware of that, you know, rumor, let's say. Um, so it's at least something. Does, does that mean he, he's considering it? And it's like, like, you know, if someone asked me to put a percentage on it, I would have literally have no idea because I haven't talked to Steve Nash about it, but it, it seems to be something that's, that has a non-zero chance of occurring. And I, I honestly wouldn't, blame him for doing that being what what I said before that he had a pretty nice life going in retirement before he took on this head coaching position I mean Jake listen man who wants to work (laughs) this is what I can never figure out with these guys you know players will retire and then go into coaching or go into television or whatever and it's like bro don't you have enough money why do you want to work go home 
Go be with yeah. your family. Go to the beach. Go do anything else. Ah, I mean, ah, man, it's just a waste of money is what it is, really. Well, that's that's spirit, all I can think of. <laughs> and, and the spirit of the show's title, I want to be clear in saying that I am not – what I'm about to say is not about Steve Nash particularly, but the general thing you hear about why these players want to continue doing anything around basketball after they retire are – Sometimes being with the family, like mm-hmm. maybe they come home off the road and realize they don't actually like their family that much. Other things. <laughs> oh, it's, that, it's tough. It's a tough adjustment. Yeah. Other things that come up are, I mean, these guys are dogged competitors, some of them, uh, and they live on routine and schedule. I mean, to the most OCDs, the JJ Reddicks and Kevin Durant's of the world, like who are timing out their day to the minute, how the reps, how many reps they do, blah, blah, blah. Like all of a sudden when the whole, the buzzer sounds and your season and your career is done and there isn't that like next thing to wake up for, like, it, it, I mean, people, t- it's a, it's a cliche to say that athletes live two deaths, right? Like mm-hmm. that's, that's a, think about that concept. Like if, if people really, if, if these players really feel like they're dying when their career is over, there's gotta be some type of allure to come back to life in some capacity. Uh, not to uh, invoke the troops, but I happen to know a lot of people in the military and former military, and it's the same way, man. Like, they wind up going back into contract jobs and, and things of that nature because they can't get adjusted to the rigors of regular life, which are far less um, – the, the lines are more gray, let's say, less black and white, and, and it can be tough. And I think for a professional athlete, your day is – your job like all day long is to be ready to be able to play basketball if you're a basketball yeah. player. And yeah. I think going to a life where it's like, well, crap, I don't have that thing to do. That drives people into it. I'm just saying as a guy who aspires to not work, <laughs> come on, man, live a better yeah. life. Let's go. I, uh, I hear the argument. I, I do hear you. Uh, Kevin, thanks yeah. again for that first question. Um, we've got Zach in the queue now who is on mute as well. So, Zach, if you want to unmute yourself, what do you got? So, it's clear that the Nets are going to have a completely different roster next year based off how many free agents they have, you know, yep. the construction of the roster with not having any wings. And they have a few trade assets like Joe Harris who makes a decent amount of money. Curry. So I'm just curious, like, what avenue do you think they go? Do they move one of their shooters to add to this roster? Do they defer that 76ers pick to next year to hopefully have increased value as an unprotected 2023 rather than a 23rd overall pick in a average draft class? And I'm, I'm saying this with the assumption that they don't re-sign both Brown and Claxton, just based off what uh, Sai has done previously by dumping DeAndre Jordan's contract to save money, not re-signing Dimwitty or willing to take back salary in a sign-and-trade. So I'm assuming that they won't be able to afford both guys. So how do they readjust this roster, make it more balanced without just signing minimum guys? See, Dave, this is where we really get in the, the please don't aggregate this danger zone. <laughs> this is this is this is a scary one. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, do, do you have any initial thoughts before? before no, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, I mean, so Claxton's been someone that, and they pushed back on this at last year's draft, the 2021 draft, that that they, that they were, you know, they were saying, oh no, 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 we were not looking at Nick Claxton to trade scenarios. But I mean, hindsight being 2020 and. The being removed from that transaction cycle, and then his name got brought up again at this deadline. Like the Nets definitely quietly explored moving Nick Claxton, and I, I think it was Zach Lowe, if I remember correctly, who first mentioned the Toronto um, concept after this deadline. Um, I definitely heard that as well. Um, I mean, I, I just think that he's someone that they have been afraid of getting paid a lot more than they're going to be able to pay him. And, I mean, they, they're going to have – they're only going to have the taxpayer mid-level available. So if someone just comes in and offers the non-taxpayer mid-level, like Claxton would theoretically just be as good as gone in that scenario if the money was what he's looking for. But 
I haven't spoken to Nick Claxton or his representatives yet, to be honest, about what they're they're truly looking for on this free agent market yet. So I don't have that answer. But from the net side of things, I mean, I I could definitely see them looking at using that first to try to with Nick to try to go get something. Um, I mean, I could see them trying to kick that pick down the road and and see because that class might theoretically have a better value there. I mean, they're, they're definitely going to be trying to address the front court um, primarily. I think with Joe, and they push back on the idea of him being available before the deadline, and I, I do believe that. I think, and especially from conversations I had the last couple of days around this team and when I was at Barclays for games three and four, like everyone was just lamenting the fact that Joe hadn't played and saying, oh, don't, don't underestimate how big of an absence Joe Harris had. So I think – I mean, I'd be—it's certainly possible, but I'd be surprised if they moved Joe. I really would. I mean, I think everything should be on the table. Yeah, right. I, I mean, that's, that's kind of how it works, right? Everything should be on the table, and, and obviously, they need to upgrade. Uh, they need to upgrade at center, and I just don't know where it comes from. Like Claxton is good, but I don't think Claxton's the guy they need. Like they need Rudy Gobert, <laughs> but they're—I don't think they're going to be able to get Rudy Gobert. Nor do I think they would go get Rudy Gobert. That would actually be highly entertaining. I mean, you think this year's off-the-court stuff was funny. Imagine that. I, I just um, – I'm just not sure what their options are. It's a, it's a weird summer, and free agency's dead anyway. So, like, are they – I wonder if they're hoping that someone says, oh, I'm not happy, and then they can go and get him. Because uh, I, I just don't know if Claxton's the guy for him. I mean, he's, he's good, but – the, the liabilities are, are there with them. And they definitely drafted Daron Sharp. Um, part of that calculus was being prepared for a future without Nick. So they've already yeah. considered it. Um, yeah. I, I just, I'm too, I haven't even really thought, like started scanning the free agent class and trying to find homes for players at this point. Like talk to me in July and I'll be able to tell you, okay, this team is the point guard. Well, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy. Like, I, I, it's, I'll be honest. I'm just not ready to think of, like, plug-and-play answers here. Um, the only thing I can go off of is, is previous um, intel. And, like, I, there really hasn't been, like, a, a significant name that I think they were going after. Like, Drummond was a name that they were looking at back in the buyout market in 2020 when he ended up um, – Joining that Lakers team, um, or twenty twenty one, excuse me, man, the years. I, I, oh, since, it's time since co- yeah, yeah, yeah. since COVID, I really can't keep these three seasons apart. Like, like I, it's it's so difficult. Um, other than that, like all the talk around Brooklyn was kind of they really wanted a backup point guard, and they were, they went and got Javon Carter. Like that, that, there really hasn't been any. The Nets have been unless I'm blanking on big man names. Like I, I don't have any real. Like solid. This is a true uh, intel of a pattern of guys they were looking at. To, to be honest, at this point, but I think all I like I said, I think all I can say is that you know they they have Daron Sharp and you know they just took Cam Thomas as well last year in the in the draft. Like I, I would expect they try to if they do keep his first round pick with all the protections for Philly, I, I definitely expect them to try to use that in some capacity to help them with that big man situation or um, or to, to find more veteran wing depth as well. Awesome. I was just thinking like that Kyrie Curry backcourt seems like it's not a great match because they're both undersized, dreadful defenders. Curry's on yeah. a value contract. That's one year left. I feel like he would be the, the trade piece to get a bigger wing player that just fits the roster better. Yeah, I know it's funny seeing all these screenshots from the, the BR uh, AMA on Twitter now, um, but that's definitely what I said to some folks in those comments. You know, people were curious about Curry, Bruce Brown, and Claxton, and I think that Claxton and Curry are far more likely to be – I mean, Bruce, from I don't know off the top of my head 100%, but I, I believe he's just a free agent, so I don't think they would be able to trade him uh, – in theory, um, I'm gonna have to brush up on 
all all these cat books going into the off season. But uh, yeah, no, you're you're correct because he signed a qualifying offer. He was restricted mm-hmm. last year, and he signed the one year four million dollar qualifying offer. So he's unrestricted, but they have his full bird rights. So they can theoretically pay him the most. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think they'll. Yeah, I I, I just think all the scenarios. Uh, play the contract value, who those players are, how they fit with the roster. Bruce to me seems to be, especially if Ben comes back and he's fully Ben. Like then, you know, I, a lot of a thing that I think a lot of teams consider in their roster construction on on their bench and their depth is to have players who at least play a similar style or or have the same physicality as their starters, so they don't have to change. Um, their schemes dramatically when you know so and so comes off the court. Um, so I mean the synergy between like you know the concept of Ben Simmons being a supercharged Bruce Brown would in theory like if you're having Bruce Brown do what Bruce Brown does off the bench as Ben Simmons does that for 35 minutes, that would seem to be a pretty good deal from Brooklyn side of things. Zach, uh, thank you so mm-hmm. much for the time, man. You know, my only concern there would be that's a lot of money committed to that type of player. How much is he really going to get, though? I don't see. That's the question. I don't know because, again, with the death of free agency, they're going to be teams with some money. I just don't think so, anyone's throwing Bruce Brown. I, and I, if I'm, I doubt it, if I'm very off on it, I haven't asked anyone on the league what Bruce Brown's contract value would be. But for my just general assessment of the market like i can't imagine he'd get more than like a 432 deal that daniel tice got last summer like i feel like that'd be the upper echelon of his ballpark mm-hmm. that seems about right yeah but that's a lot that's a lot i think it's a lot for brooklyn although actually it might money's be fake money's fake for them it, it's not a lot for brooklyn just pay the money yeah. it's like steve yeah. ballmer it doesn't matter the nor you can get norm powell it doesn't matter yeah i mean of the teams in the league that are considered to be completely uh, just unconcerned about the about the uh the tax numbers. It's it's Brooklyn, it's Golden State, it's the Clippers. So that's pretty much uh that's pretty much it. We got we got Charlie in the queue here. Charlie Saturday, who's been having a nice monologue in the comments. Charlie, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. Sometimes you just gotta talk to yourself in the chat, fellas. Um, sometimes, sometimes you do. Um, just a quick. I gotta rattle off a quick take. I have I have a question for you, but right. is the I don't believe there's another GM coach pairing in the league that survives a first-round sweep with Kevin Durant <laughs> on the roster. I mean, can you imagine if my guy Mike Budenholzer were on the sidelines making Mike Budenholzer faces the way that the, <laughs> the torches would come out for him? I mean, it's like I, I, I know he's a great dude. I love Steve Nash as a player. Sean Marks seems like a wonderful bloke, but I, I just I don't get it. Uh, that's I mean that's I that's love fair. Charlie bringing the heat. It's fair to say. I mean I one big counterpoint to that is that Mike Budenholzer is not a two-time MVP. And one of the to your point like I mean I I've, I've only spoken to Nash at length one time and it was like one of the greatest interviews of my entire life. Like I left, I hung up the phone, I was like holy shit, that was definitely Steve Nash. Um and he kind of he kind of I've been, a, I'm not going to lie. I've been a little disappointed in his press conference stuff because of that. Like I know that exists with him. And to be, I mean, to be fair, like there's a lot of guys I know around the league who have become head coaches. And then I watch them do their, do their uh, uh, press availabilities kind of from like a perspective of like, Oh, I've known this guy for a bit. I'm curious how he'll respond to this spectacle. And like, it is a tough job. I will say to stand in, up there in front of your team backdrop when no one else in that organization who's not a player has to talk at all. And you got to do it every day and field a lot of really dumb questions, unfortunately. Like I do get that being a bit of a task, but he also hasn't like shown the gravitas that I think he has and exudes and conducts himself with, which is like why I mean, that, that's the key ingredient to why they hired him at the end of all this. They thought he would be this kind of superstar glue type dude who is a superstar, who is that guy, but also doesn't take himself that seriously like that. So it allows 
people of similar greatness ilks to gravitate to him, listen to him, feel like they're both a partner and uh, 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 steward, uh, uh, someone that under his guidance, you know? So I, I think that, that that hasn't disappeared. And is that coaching? Yes, like a lot of that is coaching. The part that has been the issue has been, especially at the NBA, like a lot of the NBA coaching job is like, I talk about this with friends on the coaching side of the league all the time. Fans on Twitter and us in the media like to just immediately say like, well, do this rotation and blah, blah, blah. And there's right. a lot of times, a lot of roadblocks up that sometimes like, like for example, Russ coming off the bench in, in Los Angeles this year. I can't say definitively, definitively, like if it was from the front office or from the lake or from LeBron or whoever, or Russ, but like there was, it was not an option. It was not an option for the coaching staff, but that was something people lamented and cried about and wanted it to happen all year long. And it just, was, it wasn't on the table. Right. Um, so, I mean, that's something to also, Dave, what are you doing, man? Oh, I'm sorry. Is that, is that loud? I thought I was muted. Sorry. That is, I'm that is crackling up. very loudly. <laughs> It's all good, man. I was on a good rant. I was going. All, that, <laughs> um, all that's to say, all that's to say, like, there are people at Brooklyn who definitely have said to me, too, that, like, losing Mike D'Antone and Amy Udoka may have been bigger losses than they thought. So, will finding superior offensive, defensive coordinator type dudes be on the menu and be something that could help? Maybe, but um, I think people who are just looking at the rotations and the schemes and blah, blah, blah from on the surface level are kind of also missing the overall context of like there's certain things that he probably and I and definitively can and can't do um, depending on what the superstars want. And that's also, you know, maybe a fault of the franchise for establishing that environment, but that's also how they got Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving to come there. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Um, and then I, I have a question for, for both of you if I've got time. Um, yeah. Just a quick hypothetical. Let's say every NBA team is approached by some kind of an intelligence agent and they're offered a deluxe <laughs> package uh, on one other organization. So wires tapped, all the intel, who they're scouting, who they're talking to. I'm curious who both of you think the, the most chosen team for that would be and why. That's a very good question. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, Dave, I'm gonna I'm gonna defer to you. I have my answer. Um, but what was it? One more time. Sorry. It's okay. You're cleaning your house and uh, no, I'm not. I'm not. No, I was moving. I was moving around and I lost service a little bit. It's all right. Um, he asked if any franchise could hire like a full Intel team to like wiretap, get all the emails, whatever. <laughs> of another franchise to see who they're talking to, to see how they're doing their oh, yeah. order of operations, blah, blah, blah. What, which team would they pick? Uh, the Spurs or Oklahoma city. One of the, one of the teams that take themselves too seriously, right? Like one of these teams <laughs> that is just so self-serious, um, you know, NBA guys use the signal app for instance, and, and yeah. uh, like they're spies and shit. Um, I, I don't know, man, but one of the, one of the teams that takes this too, way too seriously. I, will I mean, say I, that, I get that it's like a multi-billion dollar business, but it's also basketball. I think I, I straddle that line in my thinking all the time of how serious is this? It's just basketball, but holy shit, it's a multi. I mean, the, the numbers of the next end, uh, TV deal are, you know, $10 billion. It's crazy. Yeah, um, I know. So again, money's fake. So, you know, if you throw the money part out the window and just think about the silliness of the sport of basketball, it's like, all right, yeah, let's well, relax. Not, we, don't, we, don't need, we don't need the KGB. Well, it's definitely not fake. There is a lot of uh, activity in the league that is spurred by money. That is for oh, sure. Oh, yeah. 100%. Well, it's a, it's a money league. It literally exists for that reason. So, yeah. Um, I would also say OKC or San Antonio, but to mix it up too, I will say I think people would probably love to take a peek behind the curtain in Miami, just being that they're always up to something. I mean, they're always planning and strategizing and clearing out their chessboard for some big move while also 
kind of rebuilding on the fly and being a perennial playoff and potentially championship contender to the point where I, th- I think they kind of had this allure and esteem about them, not just in public, but I do, I do think behind the scenes in, in league circles that I think from a, just a, cause there were some people there, let's be clear. There are a bunch of teams around the league who are like the Thunder are kind of a joke. They take themselves so seriously. What is this ultimate tanking scheme really going to produce? Blah, blah, blah. And people think of Sam Presti as being like an unserious mastermind. There are other people who obviously very much um, hold him in high esteem and consider him the greatest GM in the league. But there, I mean, I think that's, I think that's the case with every team. But Miami, I think, is the team that has the closest to a general consensus of like, wow, they are top notch and a and a banner franchise from top to bottom. And I think people would want to kind of copy that a little bit. I can't, I can't believe I'm about to defend OKC. And by the way, not that you attack them, but I will say they're playing a different game than everybody else, right? They are. So like the the way that they have to build a team is completely different than every other team in the league. Because no one wants to live in Oklahoma City. Nobody. Period. I would argue <laughs> even people from Oklahoma City don't want to live in Oklahoma City. And I, I, I hate to disparage the place, but it's not. No, I would argue against you know, that because my limited understanding is that the people of OKC got a lot of pride down there. For their okay, big local great. prayer. But no young athletic millionaire wants to live in Oklahoma City of their own free will. And so, like, they're playing a different sport when it comes to building a team. Yeah, right? it's like, a really so, challenging context. Yeah. So, that being said, it's still just basketball. So, <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, there's definitely – there's someone who – is in a number one spot in the league, let's say. Number one being on the coaching side or the the executive side, who I very much respect and think is, from my objective chair, think is um, one of the the best at what they do. And that person always says to me, how good really is Sam Presti? And I I do see the, the skeptics of it. I do, but... I mean, I, I take my hat off to, to what – obviously what they did in the 20, uh, 2007 to 2009 range. Um, but even like – and it didn't work out for a long time. But even kind of turning the aftermath of KD into Paul George and then turning um, – or I mean, they got the pieces – they got part of the pieces to, that they used for Paul George for Serge Ibaka, like – He's, he's proven both ends of the spectrum. Like the, uh, one of the biggest criticisms that I think ultimately got back to Sixers ownership and their thoughts of whether or not they really believed in Sam Hankey anymore was wondering whether or not he could actually build up a winner. And there are few people in the modern day NBA where tax implications. And honestly, I think being a front office executive and building a roster right now is the most hard and competitive and challenging it's ever been in the league's history. Um, Presti's done it at all, all. Like he's a three level scorer, right? Can you do mid range from deep from, uh, from inside? Like he, he has built through the draft. He has done, um, you know, strategic trades. He has played some interesting free agency moves there. They're not going out and signing massive dudes, but um I don't know. I, I have a lot of respect for what they've done down there. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they scout really, really well. I think they're the way that they've built their coaching staff is fantastic. Um, you know, th- this is, it's a tough job. I'm not, I, and I make fun of it uh, often because it's like amazing job security to just say, Hey, we're going to get them next year forever. Right. Like it's fantastic. Like, let me sign me up. We're going to be competitive two years from now. Um, but with that being said, it's a tough place to be competitive. Yes. All right. Kevin is back. Kevin, do we have you? Yeah. Sorry. Sorry to call in again, but I just had a quick question. Good. Figured I'd ask again since we had time, but um, I just talking about the coaching situation. Um, mm-hmm. I know in the NFL, it's more uh, known about like up and coming assistants and whatnot. I feel like in the NBA, like it's not really talked about. So I was just wondering, are there any like specific uh, assistants to look for, not only for the Nets job, but whatever openings come up? Because I know like with Yudoka, it was like he was the one that we all 
kind of wanted, yeah. knowing his defensive prowess and everything, and look what happened to us. So I was just wondering, like, if there's any names to, like, keep in the back of our head in case, like, with uh, any openings or whatever. Well, the two – you go, Dave. Uh, well, I was going to say, I would expect the Nets would be an established coach. That That's not a first-time coach's job, right? Like, an entry-level coaching job is something like Charlotte. And in Charlotte, I would look at guys like Darvin Ham, for instance. Guys that have been popping up often. Um, you know, I, I – I've been an advocate for Don Staley coaching in the NBA for about three years because she knows how to build a program, but Charlotte would be beneath her. Now, Brooklyn, <laughs> I just don't think – I mean, that's not even – I don't even say that as a joke. I, I think Don Staley is one of the most successful coaches in any domestic league in the country, right? Like, I mean, she is one of the most successful program builders. She can coach her ass off. She could coach in the NBA, any team in the NBA. Charlotte's not good enough for her. She needs to take a team that needs a coach to push them over to the top. Like Brooklyn would be a job that she could she could do. I would never want that for her, right? Like just as like me personally, like I I would not want someone to take their first head coaching job in the NBA and have it be the Brooklyn Nets. I think that's it's not a Doc Rivers job, but it's a Doc Rivers type job, right? Like oh Frank Vogel, Frank Vogel in Brooklyn, something like that. A guy who has coached in the NBA before who understands how how that stuff works. Um, but the first time coaches, I, I, they've had so much success. It's something that we've talked about a ton on Nerder this year is how much success these first time coaches have had and just how much they've injected into the league. I mean, if you look at what the Pelicans are doing with Willie Green down there coaching, just some of the creativity that we're seeing, some of the just competitive fire that the the younger coaches are getting into these guys. I mean, it's, there aren't a lot of bums coaching in the NBA anymore. I don't know if you noticed this, Jake, but like the level of coaching has just gotten to be extremely high. So um, I, I would think that Brooklyn gets a guy who's established uh, as an NBA coach. I mean, whether it's a Quinn Snyder or someone like that, I don't know. If it's somebody working somewhere else, maybe. Uh, it's not going to be Doc Rivers. It's probably not going to be Mike D'Antoni. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Again, I, sorry, Kevin. I, again, I think Nash will be there. But to answer your general question Same. about like the next upcoming assistance, um, I mean, Darvin Ham, like uh, Dave said, is probably the name of assistants who's been kind of next up that hasn't gotten a gig yet. Charles Lee in Milwaukee as well. Um, but to the Willie Green point, there, and, and I'll blend this into Charlotte too, like, Darvin Ham would seem to make a lot of sense to me for the Hornets, um, being that the reason why he's been linked to the Lakers job, that Lakers assistant uh, when he was there, Mitch Kupchak was the GM at that time. It was obviously the GM in Charlotte. Um, just, I mean, he was just on a championship team. He's, he, he's been there. Um, defenses and, and winning defense has been kind of the big roadblock separating Charlotte from that next step. Um, but to Willie Green's success in New Orleans, like Willie Green was someone that people tabbed as a guy on the league, like, oh, keep an eye on Willie Green, like he could be a good head coach one day. And he he ended up in New Orleans for various reasons. Um one of them being his relationship with Chris Paul, honestly, and, and New Orleans executives thinking that maybe that would help steal Chris Paul from Phoenix in free agency. The other was that, and I, and I wrote this at Bleach Report at the time, um, you know, definitely a big trend around the league for front offices to want to have more and more control over the, the coaching decisions. And it's a very tr- big trend to not even let your head coach hire certain assistants and player development guys that you want. I mean, of, of like, you know, it, Boston really stood out to me in their whole coaching process last offseason because they pretty much let Ime Doka hire everyone underneath him. And Orlando did not do that with Jamal Mosley. New Orleans did not do that with Lily Green. Um, I don't believe Houston really did that with Steven Silas when he took that job. Um, I'm blanking on uh, other situations. I mean, I, I do think Washington picked a, a, little, a little mix and match of assistants here and there um, under Wes Unseld. Um, so 
there are certain names and assistants who, who will go on a surprising run in the playoffs who, you know, and, and being a former player doesn't hurt in today's player empowerment era that we're in. Um, like Ime Udoki, even a lot of people listening to this might not even, not, not to call out our fans for being, our listeners for being casuals, but he just wasn't like a significant NBA player. But Ime Udoka played and having, having been in the league holds a bit of credibility the saying goes amongst players these days. Um, to that point, with the Don Staley note that Dave said, I think Don Staley is a fucking badass, and I do think if there's any first female to take that mantle who could have it and and be successful, um, it could be her. But I've spoken to, I mean, I can't even think of the number of people on the NBA dating back to when Becky Hammond was in my understanding, a fake candidate in Portland. I don't really think she had a real shot as much as she was a finalist there. And I think she was also interviewed in Orlando for for publicity reasons, for the Magic to be able to say they interviewed her. Um, I, I am unfortunately skeptical of players' willingness to being led by a, a female coach right now. I, I, I think that's... Just, I think it just is what it is. These guys are super competitive, testosterone-juiced, you know, alpha dogs in the room. I just, unfortunately, I don't think the average NBA player, just like your average conservative Jew doesn't think that a female rabbi should be, you know, commanding a pulpit. I'll, I'll use that uh, analogy from my own experience. I mean, I, it's, this is, it's just where it's at. I, I, I think it would take a very perfect blend of personality and status and what have you for a, a female head coach in the NBA who especially hasn't coached in the NBA, even with all of Don's right. accolades and success, <clears throat> these guys care about what you've done in the league. And I, I just think that's a very precarious bet for a, a front office to make and, and stake their job security to on that head coaching hire at this point. And and there are women like I think Teresa Witherspoon in in New Orleans. I mean, she's done a really great job down there. Um, everyone I talk to sings her praises. Yeah, with the, with the work that she does with her players. Uh, Lindsey Harding in Sacramento has a great reputation. Um, she's a ways off, I would say, from from any like even being like front of the bench. Um, Christy Tolliver obviously has been good. Jenny Boucher has like WNBA experience. I mean, there are coaches out there that are that are women. I, I would say um, at least a few of them are, like, on paper, ready uh, for NBA, like, credentials, right? Like, they've – just like Darvin Ham, you, you put them in the same list. And those women have been doing it. And so um, while I understand your sentiment, I hope that it's not the case because I actually would like to see this. You know what I mean? I wish I, it was I think the case, that, too. I wish it yeah. wasn't the case, too, but I, I just – Everything I've heard—that's just what. That's just how it sounds, time and time mm-hmm. again. I don't know, man. Maybe, maybe, maybe Kyrie. Maybe we can get Kyrie to like be the guy that helps push this change through. I mean, him and Kevin Durant—they they help make decisions. So let's, let's do like it. We got to get Don Staley. There you go. Right? Like, I mean, you know, that's what it's going to take. To be honest with you, not. I, I would love to have someone, uh, maybe even like a, a, a woman who's coached in the NBA talk about this, but it's going to take players saying we want to advocate for this. Yeah. Um, so just the same way that you're, you're saying that, that your sense is that players are, are maybe part of the holdup. It's going to take players advocating. I think they're the biggest part. And I think the second biggest holdup would be, I mean, the majority of, of front offices that make a head coaching hire are doing it after they fired somebody else, right? Right. And so that's that that's that's one bullet you have against like like the saying goes the typical GM gets one coach to be fired and then once you once you're on your second coach, you know, if the success isn't there, like it's on you. That's kind of the how, how it goes. So it's going to have to also take an executive who feels very secure in their status. And, you know, maybe maybe it's someone like Allison Feaster who is considered to be a, a very um, rising star, if you will, for an office-type mind in Boston, who's, I mean, 
from my understanding, kind of like Brad's right hand. So maybe it's who like her name uh, got brought up as a potential GM candidate in Portland after uh, Neil O'Shea's ouster. Like maybe, maybe that's what it takes. Maybe it takes the first female GM to hire the first female head coach, which I do think in a backwards world, I do think that a number one executive I think that's a clearer path for a woman in the NBA than a head coach right now. Gotcha. Yeah, and uh, I, I know you, you said that you were at game three and four, and I yeah. don't know about you, but in my section, when we were, I think the Nets were down like 15, I mean, we were down 15, 20 a bunch of times, but I know a <laughs> lot of people in the section were talking about trying to get Hubert Davis from UNC to come replace Nash, and I was just, Shows, oh, yeah, shows where I thought the fan base was with uh, Steve Nash and people were talking about Pop coming over and then trying to get Coach K out and there was just a lot of names being thrown around f- just from disgruntledness. Well, I will say the overwhelming majority of ideas that fans have are never considered by their front office. <laughs> I certainly hope so. Yeah, that would that <laughs> would not be good. I, I I can't wait for the first team to get into the metaverse. It's going to be Brooklyn, isn't it? Where they're like, in the metaverse, we're going to do like some sort of fan congress and have them vote on roster moves and rotation changes. When should KD go to the Wasn't bench? there a football league? Forgive my ignorance, but isn't there a football league that literally exists like that right now? Where they let them pick plays? And everything. I, I believe oh, so. That seems awful. I, I don't know, man. But that would actually be a fun way to play like Madden against your buddies is to maybe stream it and have randos pick the, pick the players. But yeah, I mean, come on, man. Fans dictating team moves would be hilarious. I would love it. It would be great for us, man. We have plenty to talk about. I do. I do root for chaos. I will admit. I say I root for fun. Right. Like, so it can sometimes resemble chaos, right? Like I, 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 yeah, I like uh, I like when fun things happen. Like if if Ben Simmons had come back and had been awesome, it would have been great. But if he had come was, back and been I bad, totally I would have hated it. Play. Yeah. yeah, if he had been bad though, I would have hated it because I don't like to see people fail, right? Like I like yeah. to see people rise to the moment. So I'm glad that he wound up not coming back overall. There you go. All right, we yeah. were a little bit late to this, but this is typically the point in the call where. I like to ask my guests, you know, I've asked you a lot of questions. We've got a lot of questions from the listeners to you, Dave DeFore. You don't have to, but do you have any questions for me? Uh, well, I, can we talk surfing or is this basketball Yeah, questions? let's do it. Let's do it. Well, because okay, I, like, I'm not a surfer. I thought I'm you an were. aspiring surfer. I, I okay. surf, but I'm not a surfer. I'm an aspiring surfer. Got right? It. Like, I'm actually m- trying to move to the beach so that I could become a surfer. So I, I love the idea that you want to be a surfer. So because I think I'll, that it's a, that that's a thing, right? Like there's a, that you have to, it's a lifestyle change. Well, I definitely have like a surfer's lifestyle mentality. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm a chiller. Um, but also, yeah. but also like my beach, like my activities, like being flexible, and doing cardio and mm-hmm. uh i grew up my, my family's got a got a nice beach spot down at the jersey shore which i'm very fortunate to have and um grew up boogie boarding and kayaking in the ocean all that jazz so I, I i'm familiar with like the rhythms of the waves so after summer league last year i did a little trip um whenever i always try to bounce around the west coast because being in new york once you get out to vegas those who don't know, who are listening right now, super cheap to find a flight from Vegas to like other cities on the West Coast because that's just how Vegas works. So great opportunity to have like a little extra weekend somewhere. And it's like the end of our busy season. So long story short, um, I had a buddy who lives in Santa Monica and he just kind of like took two boards and splashed around in the ocean. And I caught two waves my first time. So I kind of got hooked on it right away. I swallowed a lot of salt water, which was disgusting. So I'm going to have to keep my mouth closed because my like immediate gut reaction response to falling was to just go like, ah, with my mouth open and just eat total shit. Um, so I'll have to work on that. But um, 
at my beach. My dad's best friend has two kids in high school who wake up at like the crack of dawn to go surf at sunrise. And that sounds sick to me. So I'm going to definitely buy a wetsuit and a cheap old board and get after it this summer. That's my rant. That's my, that's my spiel. There you go. All right. So you, you're an aspiring surfer. I'm an aspiring surfer. Um, why do you want to surf? Um, is it I just like, the vibes? Is it just the vibes or is it the sport? It's definitely not just the vibes. I think the like repetitiveness and the like, I, you can catch a wave and like, oh, I can definitely do better. Like I want to ride the next one better is like an intoxicating feeling for like a workout to me. Um, I like being in the ocean in general. Um, and um, I'm in con- I, I have become a very big uh, cycling proponent. I try to find as much cardio as I can. That's not like killing my body. And I could be wrong, but I feel like surfing is very low impact. So, ooh, it depends. Um, it depends because like I'm a high impact guy, so <laughs> I tend to find ways to make things high impact. And surfing, it depends for me. Depends on on my dismount. I'll say. Yeah, you got to pop up, but do less and not do too much. Well, no, it's not so much that. It's the what happens when you go down, right? Am I going to cut – do I feel the need to cut a backflip here because I've gotten (laughs) myself into a precarious situation, right? Like, um, yeah, so it can sometimes be high impact. But for me, see, for me, it's the vibes. It literally is the vibes. I enjoy catching the wave, but – uh, I have caught a lot of metaphorical waves in my life, right? Like it's not just the way I'm not chasing the waves, but the vibes, man, I love to paddle out past the breaks. Oh, just yeah. sit there, dude. The ocean is a scary place. And it's a, it, it's an important reminder of how fragile and weak and tiny <laughs> I am right at all times. So I actually enjoy that feeling because it doesn't make me scared. I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. Um, I went to Maui with my lady friend um, in late January, right before the trade deadline craziness. And um, we paddleboarded in the ocean there, which is very similar to surfboard, right? And uh, um, it was like, I kind of overreported for like two weeks so I could get a story out and like not have to work that week but also like not really take i mean i don't really have a real job so there's no real like vacation days but i I did what i had to do to like totally unplug from the nba world for a bit and to sit on a paddleboard like 200 yards out into the ocean and meditate was wild especially like knowing all the noise underneath the ocean but also that the noise was just as loud and crazy back in real life that I had uh, escaped from. Pretty cool experience, man. Yeah. And, and by the way, I, I just got to say, uh, Kevin W says in the chat, also doesn't hurt all hot girls love surfers. So good call. Yes, they do. Like legit. Like, I'm not going to lie. That's Are you thing. making up a chat comment? Right I'm now? not. I'm looking at the chat. Um, and then Charlie says that surfers are not actually as chill. And that that is also true. I'm not the, seeing the serious update. Oh, I'm so yeah. Sad. The serious the serious surfers, man. They they get territorial about their beach. Well, guess what, man? I'm not serious about anything. Uh, I'm not going to be serious about surfing. I'm not really. I mean, I'm serious about basketball to the degree that I'm seriously know what I'm talking about. But I can't be <laughs> too serious about about basketball. So um, yeah, like the, it seems to me like you can be a dick about anything, and surfing is not unique there. So, yeah, some surfers are pretty chill. And in my experience, I, mean, I have yet to run into a surfer that wasn't chill. I took a surf lesson from a 17-year-old kid who's one of the best coaches I've ever worked with. Dude had great vibes. So I don't think that guy uh, has any issues. Uh, nobody would describe him as anything other than chill. Dude had great vibes. The Brooklyn Nets did not have great vibes. Dave before <laughs> did. Thank you for popping on here, man. Anything you want to plug before we let you go? I mean, check out the Athletic NBA show. That's it. Uh, that's the. That's really the only thing I have to plug, man.
It's kind of nice. Is that, is that still every day? It's every day. We got the Daily Ding yeah. five days a week. We got all kinds of other shows, the other six. I mean, or every six days. So I guess the, the only day we don't put out new shows is Sunday. But we usually have one up by midnight. So The Daily Ding was one of the podcasts, one of the many podcasts that graciously hosted me when I was trying to promote my book. Uh, so I will always remember that. And I will always remember those who did not. <laughs> thank you for popping on here man um i will always remember our convo in vegas and you taking the time to speak to me today for free can't wait to surf this summer all right man thanks everyone we'll be back on thursday with tim cato also from the athletic this is an athletic also podcast. from our our tunnel meeting also from our tunnel meeting um we will talk i'm not sure what time but make sure to subscribe and follow please don't aggregate this here in the app and you will get updates whenever we go live thanks as always guys enjoy the games tonight later